Hello, and welcome to Episode 2 of Hosted Payload, the Satellite and Space Law Podcast. From the Wiley Law Firm in Washington, D.C., I'm Henry Gola. With three months to spare, I was born in the 70s. The groovy theme music behind me is entitled 80s Bar of the Future, a song name that apparently aims to break the space-time continuum. But I'm a child, or at least a teenager, of the 1990s, so today I welcome David Tanini and Libby Smith from Maxar Technologies to talk about a film coming up on its 25-year anniversary, Armageddon. But first, it's time to talk Spectrum. We'll get up to speed on the FCC's plans to connect your cell phone to satellites. My colleague, Matty Lotenbach of Wiley, joins me for the Orbital Debrief. All right, joining me for the Orbital Debrief today, it's my younger and smarter colleague, Maddie Lotenbach from Wiley. Maddie, how are you? I'm doing good. Thanks, Henry. All right, so Maddie's going to tell us three things we need to know for March. Hit it. All right, so first up, we've got connecting mobile devices to satellites. The FCC is going to be voting at its March open meeting on proposals for a new regulatory framework. They're calling this Supplemental Coverage from Space, or SCS. Okay, so SCS, uh, another new acronym in D.C. That's good. I've seen it called a lot of things. I've seen it called Direct to Cell, or DTC. I've seen it called by Tim Farrar, Direct to Device, or DTD. Those sound a little like an acronym from the Jersey Shore, so good to avoid that. SCS it is. So how is what the FCC is doing or planning to do here different than what Apple is already doing with Global Star and what Iridium has announced with Qualcomm? Right. So as you alluded to, right, Apple is using Global Star Spectrum that's already allocated for mobile handsets like your iPhone 14 to communicate with satellites. So that existing use gets a few paragraphs in the FCC's NPRM. But it's not really the focus here. Um, The big change proposed here are rules that would allow satellite operators to partner with wireless providers, we're talking AT&T, Verizon, T-Mobile and the like, to allow mobile phones to connect to satellites using spectrum allocated and licensed for terrestrial mobile services. Okay, so my my cell phone, my my iPhone has a lot of uh, spectrum bands on it because it can communicate with all the wireless bands. Does that mean that every band on there is going to be able to connect to a satellite? No, not under the FCC's current draft proposal. Okay, got it. So for now, the FCC has proposed gating criteria that would limit the spectrum bands available for SCS. So first, a single terrestrial licensee must hold all licenses in the relevant frequencies in one of six areas. One of those areas is very large, the continental United States. Second, there must be no other primary incumbent operators in the band. And here, federal users are considered incumbents. And so then the FCC has identified five bands that meet these two requirements. All right. So how is the FCC planning to license these new SCS rights? There's that acronym again. Yeah. Well, so here it's proposing to add a new spectrum allocation to allow satellite operations on a co-primary basis subject to the certain criteria being met. At a high level here, 
you know, the FCC is proposing to require a signed lease agreement approved by the FCC, a satellite space station license, and then also an earth station license for the mobile handsets. It would also limit this for now to existing NGSO satellite operators. Neither GSO nor new NGSO satellite operators would be able to apply to provide supplemental coverage from space. All right, a lot to consider here, not to mention what does it mean to have a lease? What are the logistics of that? Service rules, technical issues, international issues. When are comments going to be due? 30 days after publication in the Federal Register, which usually occurs a few weeks after the vote. Okay, and everybody at home gets their Federal Register every day, so they will be checking that to see when comments are due. Or you can check out a very, very likely client alert on Wiley.law that will tell you when these are due. All right, that's our first item. It's a major, major item, probably one of the biggest items in the satellite world to come out in a long time. How do you follow it up? What's our second item, Manny? Second up on the list, I've got Satellite 2023 just around the corner, running March 13th through the 16th at the Washington Convention Center downtown. This is one of, if not the largest satellite conference of the year. If 2022 is any indicator, we can expect to see more than 300 companies showcasing their work in the exhibit hall and over 12,000 attendees walking the floor. Gotcha. So I'm a lawyer uh, and a uh, nerd, so I will probably stick to the lawyer panels. I find those very interesting, and I'm you know, usually one of five people in attendance, but there's a lot of other cool <laughs> panels. Anything catching your eye? So you'll definitely find me Tuesday afternoon attending a panel on addressing critical U.S. satellite spectrum licensing, sharing, and orbital resource issues. Definitely probably going to attract a number of lawyers. Uh, it will be moderated by Audrey Allison from the Aerospace Corporation Center for Space Policy and Strategy. And they've got speakers including Kalpak Gouday from Amazon's Project Kuiper, Haz Moakit from Intelsat, and our own Jen Hinden. All right. Well, I will be there for sure. Um, I imagine they'll be discussing the SCS NPRM that you just discussed. Yeah, good bet. And if you have time, I'd also recommend checking out the SGX event on Monday and Tuesday of that week. Uh, the SGX event is a series of TEDx-type talks that, frankly, inspire. Um, SGX will cover topics like human space exploration, international norms of behavior, and space sustainability. All right. So let's get to the most important event of the week at Satellite, the Wiley-hosted happy hour. Yes. Uh, Tuesday, March 14th, beginning at 4.30 p.m., we'll be at Maxwell Park, which is at the intersection of 9th and O Streets. Come have a drink with Henry, me, and uh, the rest of the Wiley team. Exactly. And uh, if you mention hosted payload, you get an extra free drink. So <laughs> please do. All right. Number three, Maddie. So finally, neat update on a new preliminary finding from the James Webb Space Telescope. Uh, they've discovered six significantly large new galaxies that may have existed some 13 billion years ago. Researchers are surprised by how quickly they will be able to form, excuse me, that they were able to form roughly 500 to 700 million years after the Big Bang, as well as their size. These have a star mass similar to the Milky Way. We're talking tens to hundreds of billions of sun-sized stars. 
While there are several galaxies that have formed much earlier, starting around 350 million years after the Big Bang, they are much, much smaller. More data is needed to confirm these findings, but it could be a major discovery. Very cool. You know, there's a blog I love. It's called uh, waitbutwhy.com. And in 2014, he wrote about the uh, Fermi paradox, which basically says with all of these stars and galaxies out there, how come we haven't found intelligent life? And it sounds like the, the quest continues. I do want to read a passage from that. This is from 2014, so it sounds like it's going to need to be updated with these new galaxy findings. But it, just chew on this uh, as, as we read it. As many stars as there are in our galaxy, 100 to 400 billion, there are roughly an equal number of galaxies in the observable universe. So for every star in the colossal Milky Way, there's a whole galaxy out there. Altogether, that comes out to the typically quoted range of between 10 to the 22nd power and 10 to the 24th power total stars, which means that for every grain of sand on every beach on Earth, there are 10,000 stars out there. I'm going to continue. The science world isn't in total agreement about what percentage of those stars are, quote, sun-like. Opinions typically range from 5 to 20 percent. Going with the most conservative side of that, 5 percent, and the lower end for the total number of stars, 10 to the 22nd, gives us 500 quintillion or 500 billion billion sun-like stars. So there you go. We're adding to that number but I still haven't found alien life that we know of from Earth. Maddie, thanks for joining Hosted Payload. Thanks for having me, Henry. All right, and welcome back to Hosted Payload. Today I have two guests, David Tanini, Senior Director of Ethics and Compliance for Maxar Technologies, which of course is a leading space technology and intelligence company, and Libby Smith, also of Maxar Technologies, where she's Director of Compliance. Welcome. Thanks, Henry. Thanks for having us. Of course. We're not here today to talk about compliance, and certainly, based on the movie, we're about to discuss intelligence. Uh, we're going to talk about the movie Armageddon. Let's get our 90s nostalgia on. Are you all sick of 90s nostalgia yet, or are you still, in, you still involved? I'm leaning in. I'm all in on 90s nostalgia. Yeah, it's it's better the second time around when you're not in your teens, I find. So that's, that's good. Um, Armageddon was released almost 25 years ago, June 30th, 1998, directed by Michael Bay and boasting writers including J.J. Abrams and Tony Gilroy. It's got a not so great 38% rating on Rotten Tomatoes and a 42% on Metacritic. It did make more than half a billion at the box office. Here's the plot very quickly before we get to the discussion. An asteroid the size of Texas is heading for Earth and humanity's only hope is a ragtag group of deep sea oil drillers led by Bruce Willis and his protege slash daughter's lover, Ben Affleck. All right, Libby, I'm going to start with you in FCC speak. Armageddon, petition to deny or comments in support? 
Uh, I'm gonna say it's a mixed bag for me, Henry. Uh, I would say, you know, was it entertaining? Sure. The uh, digital effects were fantastic. It had everything you could need. It had adventure, it had romance, a great soundtrack by Aerosmith. But in terms of aging, as you had just mentioned, Henry, 25 years ago seems like a long time ago when looking at uh, rewatching Armageddon. So I would say there was definitely, uh, it was entertaining, but uh, I think our industry and space and technology has advanced a lot in the last 25 years. Uh, so what what particularly did you find out of date in Armageddon from now? I mean, there's so many so many choices to choose from. Actually, you know, the thing that I I noticed, um, you know, technology aside, uh, science aside, what I thought was interesting and something I noticed was that the, there were not many women um, at NASA. There were not many women scientists represented, which was disheartening um, as a woman in the satellite industry. Um, I think that what is not realistic is that today I see a lot more women represented in our industry. So that to me stood out. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of other uh, choices here that I could, could go. But I'm, I'm going to say that uh, the representation I think was lacking. I, t I totally agree uh, on, on the women front. And, you know, last week on this podcast or a month ago, we discussed The Martian where Jessica Chastain was the leader of the mission. So movies came a long way in 20 odd years. So that's good. Yes. Um, but yeah, women not strongly represented in this movie. Liv Tyler had the depth of a uh, piece of paper. I felt like her character uh, in this movie and not, not a lot of women on the screen. So not going to argue with you there. David, petition to deny or comments in support for Armageddon. I'm comments in support. <laughs> my, that's my, good. My, I, I'm still on edge from all of the action, uh, you know, from watching it a couple of days ago. It's 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 just such a uh, such a rush of of action and emotion that uh, I can only provide comments and support. What was your favorite part of Armageddon? Uh, how can you not fall in love with the ragtag group of oil drillers who are saving the world? Right. Uh, I, the quote, you know, at one point, these the oil drillers led by Bruce Willis are walking into, you know, some training center with NASA and a, a, an authentic NASA astronaut looks at them and says, talk about the wrong stuff. And I thought that that was that was a perfect representation of, you know, the guys that we want to go up and save the world. You know, having just seen Top Gun and Top Gun Maverick. Uh, again this summer, I couldn't help but think that Armageddon was trying to bite some of that energy by having this like ragtag group of of guys training. There was a, there was way more training than I remembered in the movie uh, before they go to space. Space is like the last hour, but there's a good forty five minutes of them just hanging out, getting all, to know how to go to space. All of which is compressed into seven days, though. <laughs> That's right. Because That's the right. meteor is going to hit in a mere 18. That's right. That's right. Uh, Libby, uh, you know, you, you, you say it's a mixed bag. There were definitely, I would say, a need to suspend some disbelief in this movie. Anything you found particularly unrealistic in your rewatch of Armageddon 25 years later? 
Wow. I mean, there's certainly, there's a lot there, uh, I would say. But I think, you know, what, what does strike me is that um, NASA's role, I think, is still important. It was important 25 years ago. Um, maybe not wholly for all of the purposes of a Texas-sized meteor coming towards uh, Earth. Uh, but, you know, I certainly think that NASA's mission, you know, continues to stay relevant today. Um, you know, making sure that we're exploring um, outer space and um, putting money behind the agency to support, you know, Earth safety and all those good things. So I, I thought that it was interesting how NASA was represented at that time. Bunch of scientists in a building around a table trying to solve this planet ending problem. Um, I don't know if that's really how it works today, you know, if, if it would be around that same table, but I do certainly think it was interesting to watch how the agency was represented, the importance to the president and to the importance to the American people and really, you know, all people uh, on the surface of the planet. So I, I did think it was uh, NASA's representation was certainly very interesting as well. You know, there was even a crack about NASA's budget Right. And why, why they didn't see the asteroid coming. I mean, that was a little strange, right? If an asteroid is that big, pretty much bigger than anything in the Kuiper belt in our solar system, how would we not see this coming? David, thoughts? It was the 90s. <laughs> it was the 90s. We had other things on our mind. I guess so. Like Aerosmith, I mean... which has not one, not two... Not three, four songs in Armageddon, and Liv Tyler, daughter of Steven Tyler. Very Aerosmith heavy. What is the best Aerosmith song in this movie? One of them was nominated for an Academy Award, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. Yes. Don't want to close my eyes. Don't want to See, fall I've, asleep. I've got to go with the award-winning award song. That was your favorite. Libby, thoughts? Oh, yeah. If you're going to use it for a closer for a movie, you got to put, you know, your number one at the end, right? Leave everyone with a uh, an uplifting feeling. I'm, I'm going with Close My Eyes or whatever the title is, the song with the uh, closing closing credits. <laughs> it was not only the ending credits. It was in the middle for a big love montage between Ben Affleck oh, that's and right. Tyler. Yes. That's right. Where, yes. So uh, it was featured twice. Um so they've had a lot of staying power. They were already old in the 90s, and look at them now. They're still around. They're still in Vegas. So I think that the movie had used sweet emotion at some point during a, a, a work montage where they're yes. you know, preparing themselves, and I thought that that was particularly well done. So Yes, and a little on the nose when the group was coming together, they also played Come Together, That's right. which, of course, is a cover. There were a couple issues in terms of the disbelief I, I, I saw is that, okay, so we're early on. And let's put the space part aside. You know, people can have problems with how the rocket was maneuvering and whether you'd actually hook up with a Russian space station. Yeah, I get that. Um, my problem is more with timing because they go dragoon Bruce Willis in the South China Sea, right? He's on an oil rig and all his buddies are there also on an oil rig, and they take him back to Texas to debrief him for this top-secret mission. And then 10 minutes later, they're doing a montage where everybody who was just on an oil rig is now at a casino or riding on a horse 
or at a strip club. How did they all get from the South China Sea to the U.S. that quickly? That's what I want to know. And it's not answered. David, you you are the mark for this movie. Explain how this is possible. You've got to suspend disbelief throughout this movie. And if that's the thing that you're... <laughs> that you're hanging your hat on, uh, then, then we're going to have a lot more issues with the movie, but you know, um, yeah. And, and, and that's right after they struck oil, right? Yes. So here they, they, they strike oil, they strike it rich, um, in the South China sea in the, the very next scene, they're riding a motorcycle through Montana, as you said. So there's, there's a lot of things that you just got to go with it. You know, what was the most impressive scene of destruction New York City, Shanghai, or Paris? Uh, I'm going to go with Paris. I think the Arc de Triomphe, you know, seeing that in the scene was really resounding. I thought that was uh, that was a pretty, pretty graphic, uh, I think, city to destroy. I totally agree. I thought I thought the Paris scene was really well. I like I like how it rolled up through the city and then right. they showed the aftermath. That was pretty cool. Uh what I, sorry to go back to this disbelief, David. I, I know there's just so much of it, though. New York is destroyed, yet nobody's panicking. Nobody knows there's an asteroid coming. It's just like very quiet. Manhattan has just had a meteor shower, and everybody's like, yeah, it's cool. Nothing's going on. Nothing to see here. No panic in the streets. Uh, there there um, was also the that idea that I think at one point in the movie, they, they commented that only nine. Uh, telescopes or observatories or, or what have you in the world can see this gigantic Texas-sized asteroid. And eight of them were, were owned or operated by the United States. And so the rest of the world was kept in the dark. They also, the entire world also listened to the same speech from the president of the United States. I don't yeah. know if you all caught that. Um, it, was it was translated was into the, many languages, apparently. So It, it was a, an uplifting moment of uh, worldwide unity you know, in support of the American oil drillers. <laughs> yes. So it was a very hopeful story, which is part of the reason why I comment and support. It is hopeful. It ends on a hopeful note. And realistic or not, NASA did arrange for after the nuclear bomb to be deposited in the core of the asteroid for the drillers slash astronauts, astronauts to escape the planet and take back off or escape the asteroid and come back to Earth. Pretty miraculous, but it's good that they had an escape plan and they didn't just leave him up there to die. So, not a hopeful character, the, the Steve Buscemi character. Kind of a wild card watching that character again. Yeah, lots of thoughts, Henry. Uh, it was, you know, listen, we all need a little comic relief and why not take a stab at um, somebody who has... An incredibly high IQ, you know, right? So I think to David's comment earlier, you've got this ragtag group, um, but a you know some surprise geniuses who are just lurking, lurking within the team. So you know he certainly was interesting um, from the sense that you know he was brilliant, and uh, I did appreciate at the end when uh, you know he wanted to volunteer to stay behind, and he said I had a spot picked out. So. I, I do appreciate, you know, to David's point again, to the uplifting spirit of the this group. You know, they seem like uh, the most uh, heroes in the way that you would never have expected. So he was an interesting character, but 
uh, I think largely just for comic relief. Who was the one actor or actress who you didn't remember was in this movie? When you're Owen Wilson. It? Owen Wilson, me too. That's, yeah, totally. Who knew? Totally forgot he was in it. Um, and well, he didn't course, survive. Well, his character yeah, he, they killed him off. Yes. <laughs> pretty, you know, pretty early in the, uh, in the action. All right. Anything else to add on this 90s classic Armageddon before I let you all go back to the 2020s? Uh, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the shoddy Russian space uh, station <laughs> that was falling <laughs> apart and uh, leaking fuel and uh, just this, this notion of, you know, the Russians having something in space and having an astronaut who was up there for 18 months uh, staying in, you know, what wouldn't have passed a health inspection. With one astronaut yes. played by an actor who, of course, is Swedish. So I thought that was good, too. <laughs> Libby, any parting uh, thoughts? It was a fun ride, um, a dip back into nostalgia, the late 90s. I, I, uh, I'm glad that I looked back at it. Um, like I said, some things have been fun and exciting, but a lot of other parts didn't age well. But uh, what a fun, what a fun dip, trip back. It was fun. Well, great. David, Libby, thanks so much for joining episode two. You made two. That's pretty good of hosted payload. Thanks so much. Thanks, it's Henry. been fun, Henry. Thanks for having us.